Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest, authentic conversations with wonderful, under-the-radar folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes, and thank you for listening to Basic Folk. Our guest today, this is going to be fun. Mark Dignam is a singer-songwriter who is based in Pittsburgh for the past couple decades, but originally comes from Ireland. So hello, we get to listen to his awesome accent for like an hour. It's going to be great. Before we get into what uh, Mark and I talk about, let's take a moment to thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Lindsay Myers at LMNO Management. If you love hearing new artists, she thinks you will like the fresh sounds of McDean, songwriters who love each other. McDean.co slash Basic Folk or on Instagram at McDean Sings. I got to know Mark Dignam uh, during my time in Pittsburgh, which I lived in Pittsburgh for 11 years, now located in Boston. Um, but uh, Mark has been one of the most charismatic performers I've come across in Pittsburgh and like basically ever. I know like I say this a lot, but Mark has a way of like really captivating a live audience in a way that is truly special. So we get into that um, sort of element and place that he takes his listeners when performing live. We talk about his upbringing in Ireland. We talk about cutting his teeth performing on the streets of Dublin, along with people like Glenn Hansard, who Mark met when they were teenagers and they would perform together and busk on the streets. And it's it's really a wild ride uh, to listen to this interview with Mark Dignam. So glad that you have decided to check out the cast today. We'll take a listen to a song from uh, actually the only album that Mark has up on Spotify. It's called Rebuild. It was recorded live at Tree Lady Studios in Pittsburgh, PA. The song is called Tallahassee. And then we'll get into our conversation with Mark Dignam on Basic Folk. Fought so hard this morning. Thought the room would shake. Most of what I said was wrong. My mistake. Now I'm screaming down the highway, trying to find where you have gone. Don't think I've made a mess like this in all oh, so very long. Gonna be the storm, the Tallahassee, and the clouds coming down. Come on. Gonna be the storm, the Tallahassee. Storm the Tallahassee up about coming down, coming down. Mark Dignam, thank Great you for being here. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Of course, Appreciate thanks for it, yeah. coming to the basement, making your way all, all the way across town. 
Um, the, the empire, the podcast empire. <laughs> you are in it. So we're just going to talk about your entire life. <laughs> is that all right? I've got quite a bit of it now at this stage. I know. Well, also, yeah. today is Mark Dignam's birthday. That's right. 21. 21. Multiple times. <laughs> I like this so much. Uh, but thanks for joining me on your birthday today. Mm-hmm. Um, so early life, you lived in the suburbs of Dublin. Mm-hmm. What was your town like? You were born in 1968. 1968. And uh, I grew up in a suburb called Finglas, which is... Uh, I mean, you know, everything's so old in, in Ireland, like, you know, so there, there's been villages there for a long, long time. But it became this this big sprawling suburb in the in the 60s in Dublin, mm. where a lot of people got turfed out of the inner city when the inner cities had fallen apart. And it wasn't very well catered to, the whole neighbourhoods of Ballymun and, and Finglas. So it became, you know, kind of a little bit of a desperate place in some ways. A lot, a lot of the problem children from the inner cities were thrown into these areas and wasn't much in the way of facilities, so it kind of devolved quite fast. What's that movie that Glenn's in? Which one? <laughs> uh, the the one about the soul band. The Commitments. Yeah, was that yeah. kind of what it was like? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> like the, the Commitments, and even once to a degree is a little bit more romanticized to some degree. But mm. and there's elements of that. And I, I, this is going to be a very confusing in, in, <laughs> interview because I have so many shifting opinions about all of this stuff now. There's so much romance about Dublin and Northside Dublin, and there's also the gritty side of it. I Mm. would have grown up on the gritty side of things, Mm. you know, and uh, I always say to people, there's lots that I love about my neighbourhood and my city, but I wouldn't wouldn't relive my teen years at all. It wasn't terribly enjoyable, Mm. you know. To to a degree, uh, I kind of walked the streets feeling like I had a target on my back. Why is that? Well, I mean, growing up with uh, a physical disability, you know, which I could talk a lot about in terms of countering that whole idea. But I was I was a target and I felt like a target. And that was, you know, that was somewhat traumatic for me. So I think it put me on the on the outsides of everything, which, you know, to a degree, I actually think is a great thing for me as a as a as a writer and a an observer of life to have been put on the periphery of society mm. and then be able to look in. So everything has its pros and cons. But it was tough. It was tough stuff. I didn't necessarily enjoy my childhood all that much, and particularly my teen years, mm. which, you know, led me to falling in love with expressing myself musically later. Mm. Wow. Um, there's so much there. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yes, there is. <laughs> um, I want to know a little bit more about your family, is that all right to dive in? Maybe. There? Maybe. Let's okay. see how far I delve. Um, Dad was a truck do- driver. Yeah. Yeah. Do you get he, along? No, not really. He wasn't around very much. He was, uh, I mean, I always joke with people, he's kind of a low-level gangster. And he basically, you know, his family were more these hardcore guys that he hung around with than, than us. So he never really was around all that much. So, you know, my mother... It, it's 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 odd. I used to think that my mother was the issue in our family, because she and I realise now, being a single parent myself, she was stressed out to bits. She was stressed out to bits, and she did a great job with what she had. She brought mm. four of us up on her own, and uh, I, I can't praise the woman enough for that. Mm. Uh, so I have, you know, I have that love hate relationship with that whole. It it, it made the, the family was definitely dysfunctional. Very very dysfunctional family. And uh, to a degree, it led me to run away from it very quickly. 
you know, as soon as I hit 18, yeah. bang, I got a, got a crappy little factory job in Dublin, got my own apartment in the centre of Dublin. What was the factory you were working at? It was, it was we made transformers, uh, electric, not, not, not the... Uh, not the toys. Not the toys, <laughs> unfortunately. So, you know, winding wire around these things and making these transformers, and it was a horrible job. The guy we worked for was an asshole. You can edit mm. that whatever way you want. No, you uh, can swear on this podcast. Oh, I can. Yeah. Fuck, that's great. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was it was a terrible job, and I eventually walked out of it and went busking. Pretty much, I'd already. And started. did you did you make your your rent that way? Just busking? about. I mean, yeah. the thing is, I mean, back in the eighties, you know, particularly most of the musicians, everybody was on welfare. Pretty much, we called it state sponsorship of the arts. You know, <laughs> uh, so and. You know, and it was, it was, there weren't very many jobs for people on our side of the fence. You know, I mean, literally, literally people would uh, have to fake their addresses. They would have to get friends on the south side of the city and use their addresses to apply for jobs. So mm-hmm. it was a tough, it was a tough time. And we were young and free spirited and trying to, trying to make music careers. So we mm-hmm. kind of surfed that for as long as we possibly could. And um, did we manage to pay our rent? I, I was incredibly lucky, actually. My apartment in Dublin was so incredibly cheap. I actually lived in, it was almost like a derelict building. Half the building was derelict. And there was two floors on the top that weren't. So there was no heat in the place. And, and you know, Ireland doesn't get as cold as it gets here. Yeah. But uh, my rent was so cheap and my landlord trusted me so much that I would literally only pay my rent twice a year. Wow. <laughs> he would turn up twice a year and say, do you have the money? Are you all right for it? And I would say, yeah, sure, you know, because I'm good with money. So I was like, you'd give him like six months. Give him six months rent at a time, like, wow, you know, and unusual. And it was incredible. I mean, I often think there might have been some kind of scam. The guy might not have even owned the building. <laughs> just this guy. <laughs> he just turns up, up every every yeah. twice a year and collects rent off me and then goes away again. <clears throat> oh, wait, before we get into um, Dublin too much, I have a couple more questions about um, mm-hmm. you as a young person. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the Catholic Church or do you want to talk about the music that you are interested Ooh, in? Oh, how long do we have? <laughs> we have an hour. An hour. <laughs> we'll possibly fit it all in. One of my first recollections of the Catholic Church where I was had some kind of an awareness that there was something wrong. <laughs> uh, we were being prepared for our first Holy Communion. Mm. And That's like you're seven years old. Seven years old. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and this priest comes in and he's giving the talk. And it's like, you know, Moses in the Red Sea. Like everybody parts ways for the priest to come mm. and sit amongst us and talk. And the stuff he's on about, like, he, you know, he's don't ever meditate. That's the doorway to evil and, and hell and damnation and blah, blah, blah. And then he's making all these wisecracks about women that are just obviously very negative and, you know, there's stuff about whiskey and there's, you know, it's the most stereotypical Irish Catholic priest experience that you could it's possibly have. like a parody, yeah. it, it really was. In <laughs> retrospect, it's a parody. And I remember feeling uncomfortable around the guy. I was like, I didn't like, I didn't like how he smelled. I didn't like how he talked. Mm. I didn't like anything about him. And Did I, you have a good, like, bullshit meter? Did bullshit detector? You know what? Sometimes I think I do. And then I've been, I've been caught out recently uh, rather majorly where I'm like, wow, I did not see that coming. Mm. I don't even want to talk about that right now. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and I think I think I got it from there. And I mean, I grew up around so many bullshitters. I grew up around people who weren't honest and weren't uh, weren't okay. And so to a degree, yes, you know, but you can still get caught out. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but I think it started there. I was like, there's something wrong with that. You know, all the books are talking about love and Jesus and all that. And then this guy seems like a reprehensible piece of shit, you know, like yeah. what's going on with that? And the thing is like the Catholicism that I was brought up with, we were marched through it. You know, it was a dutiful thing. It wasn't, wasn't a beautiful thing. It was a dutiful thing. So when I got to like 15, 16, I was like, I don't believe any of this stuff. I don't like it. I don't like any of the people. There's, it's all boxed in and I really didn't like it. So I, as soon as my father left and there was nobody to, you know, demand that we go and do this, that and the other, I was like, right, well, screw that. I'm not doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of, you know, around that whole period of time, 16, 17, I think was probably quite a catalyst for me that whole time. It's when I started hitting the streets, uh, myself and Glenn playing, and I came in contact with a whole bunch of very, very different people that I'd never, all these Southsiders that I didn't hang around with. Mm. <laughs> I lived on the North side. And I got introduced to books and ideas and different ideas that I'd never encountered. Mm. Uh, the world started to The world open. really opened up. It was, you know, it's almost like, you know, that crossing of the Liffey from North to South uh, really changed my life, you mm. know, and I, I learned or I began to learn so much about everything from there. Wow. And I remember having conversations with you about the type of music that you were into maybe maybe later on in the 80s, like the House Martins and stuff like that. But like as a, as a kid, what was resonating with you? Well, you know, it was funny. When all of that stuff was going on, I didn't like it very much. Like the Cure, Echo, the Bunny Men and all. They were, I was surrounded by a... Crazy? Crazy stuff. <laughs> I, was into, I was into bad music when I was 15 and 16. Um, like what? I, I liked a lot of like hard rock and metal stuff and, and I think it was the energy. I had a lot of anxiety and, and anger in me at that time and mm. that was really great for it. That's it. It's the interesting thing that the commitments really got that whole thing right about Dublin, how music was everywhere, like absolutely everywhere and it really permeated our lives. Did you play music as a young child? No, no. no. My, my parents... That seems like not what I would have imagined, you know? Yeah, well, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. It, you know, we didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up so my parents bought me a guitar when I was probably 15, 16, and then I started mm-hmm. playing and went out in the streets with it. So I didn't have it, but still there was music all around us. Like, I mean, the big thing in Ireland is, you know, Sunday afternoons, it's always like a trad session somewhere in a, in a bar or something. There's always music going on somewhere. How old were you when you drank your first Guinness? 16. I was late to the That's game. pretty late, yeah. I was late to the <laughs> game. I was always a good boy <laughs> until I wasn't. Yeah. And then, you know. No, I, uh, yeah, no, I was always, I was more the, I've always been the conscientious guy and the more, uh, any dabbling I've ever done in anything has been very conscientiously done. You know, any time when I, I think it was in my mid twenties, I said, okay, I'm going to try drugs. Let's see how that goes. So I spent like, you know, a year, it was this girlfriend I was hanging out with. She's a lot of fun, great woman. And she was like, here, let's do some acid. Let's do some ecstasy. So did a handful of that for a while. And I said, right, great, did that, move on, you know, and I've never, I've never done it since. Where does that trait in your personality come from? It's a Capricorn thing, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't know. I mean, I have, I, I question it a lot because to some degree, I'm probably a, mo- a lot more liberal and radical than a lot of people. And then there's this other part of my personality that's very meticulous and very uh, perfectionist and yeah. very intentional. Mm-hmm. That's a very big thing for me. I try... Uh, and even more so now, later in my life, I try to be very, very deliberate about everything I do, mm. you know. And, there, and I'm also deliberate about not being deliberate. 
you know, if you can get that idea where I just say, right, it's time to let off all the fucking handles and just like go down the chute the mm. and see where that takes me. You know? Sounds but like I've kind of, But I've done a lot. Yeah. You know, I've lived, I mean, I, one of the things that I love about my life is that I have hung out with homeless people on the streets, like drug addicts, and I have hung out with billionaires and everything in between. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've 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 hung out in at least ten or eleven different countries at this stage, and multiple cities. So I've had I've had this wide experience that that I that I'm I wouldn't have had if I didn't do music. Mm-hmm. So you know, I adore that aspect of my life. Did you know that the Danes don't like the Greenlanders? No. There's an aspect of Danish culture where they look on the What's Greenland, the Greenlanders, the people that live in Greenland. It's another big country off. It's like Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Right. <laughs> they, they think of some of them. That blew my mind. and that's It doesn't of, make any sense to an outsider. Yeah. And I was, didn't even know it existed. They think of it like the Mexicans here, mm. you know, coming here, taking our jobs and all Weird. that. So, wow. so I've had all these experiences that I never, ever would have had if I hadn't have taken those steps out of my community mm. with a guitar on my back. Yeah. Glenn Hansard. Mm-hmm. When did you guys meet? We were, I was probably 17, he was about 15 and a half. And it was my brother bought him to the house first with uh, another buddy of mine, Jimmy Judge, who I haven't seen in a long, long time. And they showed up with this redhead guy, says, you know, he's into music as well, you should talk to him. And so the two of us started talking about guitar and music we were into, and then he brought his guitar over the next time. And we literally sat down working. It's very funny, Glenn was, Glenn was a Dylan fanatic at the time. And to the extent that, like, like he lived and breathed Dylan. Mm-hmm. Everything was, he looked like Dylan, he sounded like Dylan, everything. And I was the, the rocker. I was all into ACDC and, <laughs> and he kind of was as well. So we bonded over all of that. And there was a, there was a local youth club thing, had a talent, talent competition. And we said, let's go, let's do it. So we a went, youth club. A youth club. So our first time on stage, I think, together was at this youth club. And, uh, and and we won the talent competition. We got a little trophy. I think his mother still has it on the oh. <laughs> on the mantelpiece at, at home. So from there, it was getting out. We decided to, to go busking because mm. that's what you did. Yeah. You know, so we hit the streets. Did you get to know Glenn's family? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does I he know. get along with his family? I think, yeah. Probably more so than I do with mine. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Did that have any kind of effect on you, like getting to know someone's family who... Uh, supports them or gets along with them? I have one of my best friends in the world, stereotypically, is Sean Murphy in Dublin. <laughs> and when we were 15, 16, I hung out with him. And I, and I, and I was envious. I was envious of, of how his family was. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I almost got semi-adopted into that family. And I've, it's funny, I've come to realise that having a family is a very, very major thing for me. You know, that having that cohesive family unit that I didn't have is a major drive in my life, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's made it's actually made me make some bad decisions as well. But yeah, I have an envy. I have a, not a lust. A lust is not the right word for it. But that general trust and drive towards trying to capture that that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. So when I'm around people like that, I I do I sit there sometimes and I look at their families and I go, yeah, didn't re- I didn't have that, didn't get that. Yeah, you know, which is which is a note of sadness for me. You know, for sure. There's so so much going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so getting back to playing on the streets of Dublin, can you give me a sense of, like, what your day-to-day was like on Grafton Street? 
And what talk about like what Grafton Street is like? I've never I've never been. Grafton Street. If you're for for people here in Pittsburgh, it's kind of like Shady Side. You know, it's like Walnut Street. It's fancy. Right. It's a little fancy. Like a yeah. shopping. Yeah. Street. It would be a little bit more upmarket. And Rodeo Drive. Right, there you go. It was the Rodeo <laughs> Drive of Dublin. and uh, But it was the south side. Stephen's Green was just up the street. And there was... There What's was a, Stephen's Green? St. Stephen's Green is, you know, it, it, it'll it pop up in major pieces of poet. No, it's a park. Oh, okay. It's a park. But it will it will show up in like, you know, the work of Yeats or the work of, you know, it's one of these oh, okay. Oscar Wilde and... and all of those would make mention of Stevens Green. I'm sure that there are people listening right now like, Cindy, I can't believe. How does she not How know she this? How does she not know? Well, you know, the thing is, not you, the first ne- you time. need to go and hang out in Dublin for a little I bit. I know. And then we'll do this again. <laughs> um, but Grafton Street, so it was a little bit upscale. But with the tradition, you know, the modernizing, commercializing Ireland is then rubbing up against the old traditional, the poets and the bards get their place at the table mm. kind of thing, you know. So we, So there was this begrudging tolerance of street performers. It was quite odd in a way. Like, I mean, every now and then they would call the cops and try and get us moved off the streets. Did you need to get, like, a permit? Not at that time. They talked about it. Um, we we were very popular. Like, we were very popular. Like, you and Glenn? Yeah, and myself and Glenn started together and then we, we added a few other people then, a guy called Mick Christopher... Um, Miriam Ingram, David Udlam, all these people who would go on to form other bands later on. So it became this kind of community. And then eventually it got up to, as as we got more popular, there would be literally 15, 17, sometimes 20 of us all, <laughs> all playing. And then literally, like every weekend, like a couple of hundred people would come in religiously every weekend to come and watch us. So it was like, it was like an outdoor concert. Sounds amazing. It was. And it's funny, like we took it for granted, or at least I think I took it for granted at the time. It was just normality to us. The Hothouse Flowers had done it before us as the Benzini brothers. I don't know if you know Mm-hmm. Oh, those flowers. Mm-hmm. So great, great bunch of guys. I think Bro- that's who I was trying to refer to, and I called them the House Martins. Ah, right there you go. <laughs> the flowers are a beautiful bunch of people. They're great, great guys, great musicians. So they used to busk before us because they were a couple of years older than mm-hmm. us. So we would take their spot after them, and it would be the same thing. Like we would get, eventually, we would get a couple of hundred people who would come in on a regular basis, and just stop the whole street. And HMV was across the street and they had the these, record store. The record right. store. They had these windows. So there was balcony seats. There was all these people that would line oh, that's so cool. the windows of HMV. So it was it was pretty incredible. And like all of a sudden, you know, you'd you'd be in the middle playing and one of the water boys would pass by. Sure. You know, or <laughs> somebody would say, Jay's guys, Van Morrison's in the audience. Or something like that. You know, or Sinead O'Connor would, would, would be in, in the area. So it was that kind of scene and we do, we just it was what we were in the middle of mm. and it was what we were doing and for me it was it was an amazing time because we did nothing but live talk and breathe songwriting and performing mm-hmm. and we were very much it was it was almost like a workshop <laughs> that went on for a few summers where all we did was talk about how we wanted to be as performers and what we should do and shouldn't do and yeah and it was it was very much the formative years yeah, for like us. Yeah, like your education. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then then we kind of started moving on into uh, some of the songwriter nights. There was a, a very influential guy called Dave Murphy, who had been playing. He played around in the '60s and '70s, and he would do these gigs that he would curate very tightly. 
mm-hmm. and he would invite people that he saw that he liked and that was our next step into those gigs mm-hmm. before we started forming our own bands and getting into bigger stages and things like that. Is this still going on? He's still on the go. You know, they've, met, they've, they've done lots of interviews with Dave and I think maybe there's a documentary or two about him. Um, and I always, I always reference Dave because I think he shaped a lot of us mm. after those street performances. He would, you know, teach us how to be on stage, teach us how to treat a stage. Mm. You know, and I, ha- I have a great reverence for the stage from those. Don't you think a person like Dave is just integral to creating an authentic music community? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's also, um, there were some venues as well. I always think of Dave Allen in Whelan's. Whelan's is one of the big stomping grounds in Dublin where everybody has played. Mm-hmm. A few of those people were very instrumental where they, they consciously put their fingers in the pie to see what was in there and, and what they could do with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember going to Dave Allen in, in Whelan's at one stage saying, you know, I'm looking for a gig. And he was very honest about it. He was like, you know, I don't think you're ready yet. But here's what I'm going to do. I want to team you up with this, 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 and this person, and see how you do. So there was that. There was there was like an opening set. Yeah, yeah. So there was there was a little bit of shepherding to yeah. some degree it's that great. I that I think is very very important for a scene, mm-hmm. for any scene. And I think that they're they're the ones that actually do blossom when there are people that take an actual, you know, stroll outside of their offices and and rather than waiting for everything to come. Right. To you, because what happens when you wait for everything to come to you is you get what I call the front row. And the front row is usually the people who they've got a bunch of money to spend and they're the ones that can scream the loudest, mm-hmm. but may not necessarily have the actual talent. But you've actually got to go in and fish into a scene and say, who are the people who are really doing it? Right. Not the ones with the best press releases. You know, I mean, I, I spent years opening up for bands who had all the best amplifiers, all the best instruments. Mm-hmm. They could afford to do magic-looking posters and PR and things like that. And then when you sat down and listened to their music, you're like, this is fucking shit. This is, there's nothing here. <laughs> you know, it's a bunch of upper-middle-class kids that have all the tools. Yeah. You know, but they're the front row. They're the ones who can get to the system quickest because they've got the resources. So I love any any scene any person in a scene that, that kind of quietly steps over that and says, well, who's the, who's the people that can actually play? Who's yeah. the people who can actually create? I really subscribe to that. Right. Um, yeah. So I kind of want to backtrack a little bit. Sure. You had mentioned your disability, mm-hmm. and uh, I want to know a little bit more about you have a, a limp. Mm-hmm. Have you always had it? Yeah. Yeah, I was born with cerebral palsy. Essentially, it's brain damage, <laughs> which mm. explains a lot. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Doesn't affect, doesn't affect me that way. But it's... It's basically damage that's done in the process of birth. Mm. I think maybe it cuts off some oxygen or something like that. So for me, it means I probably have about a quarter of the strength in my legs that you would have in yours. Mm-hmm. And coordination's a little tough for In me. both Balance. legs. Yeah, well, it's actually like my right leg is a little weaker than my left. And yet my right leg's a little bit more flexible than my left. So it's, there's kind mm. of like a, a back and forward. So mobility is definitely an issue. I don't know how I managed to do some of the things I've done over my life mm-hmm. like I remember I remember going to Paris with, with two guitars and, and a roller case wow on public transport and I did that I did that around I did it around I did I did Germany Germany, Denmark France, England I did some of these tours on my own uh, <laughs> on public transport wow. and, to the, and I'm looking back and I'm like how the hell did I do that I have no idea how I managed to you know airports and trains and mm-hmm. cabs and things like that so I don't know but I mean I think 
somehow there's there's an element of me that's like, don't ever tell me that there's something I can't do. Mm. Don't ever say that to me because I'll just climb the fucking scaffold and do it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I think over the years that I've known you, I've come to realize that like you, you can just do anything. Yeah. You know, like I'm not around people a lot that have like disabilities mm. or even even people with like a speech impediment. I was mm-hmm. talking to a Pittsburgh rapper Nardo says recently who has he has a speech impediment and he stutters mm-hmm. and one of his songs is called Well Did I Stutter and he's like just directly it's a hip hop song about his disability mm-hmm. and I'd never experienced that before where somebody's like yeah I I do this or I do that and when I was interviewing him, he was like stuttering mm-hmm. and I could feel myself wanting to like jump in and help. Yeah. And I felt that with you before. And I don't know if that, if you can feel that from people. Yeah. Yeah, I can. Absolutely. Some more, more clearly than others. I always say to people like questions are never a bad thing. Never feel that you can't ask. It should be an open thing. It's something that's, you know, not terribly obvious about me. I've had a lot of people who are like, oh, what's up? I didn't, I didn't realize that you you had any kind of issues at all. Mm-hmm. I'm very open about it. Uh, I don't necessarily want it to define me because it doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's an aspect of my life. And I, and I have very opinionated opinions about the whole idea where I'm like, is it really that I have a disability or is it that society really doesn't cater to a wider scope of humanity? Yeah. You know, I mean, if, if, you, if you designed the world with a few less stairs in it and things like that, I probably would do a lot better. That being said, there's like a million stairs to get <laughs> into my house and then down into my basement. That's all. Well, the, the trapeze and the, you know, all of that stuff really helped. So I thank you for oh, that. Oh, yes. Yeah. The, 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 so. um, the zip line. Yeah. <laughs> Just had that installed. Um, so how about coming to America? You had a record deal in New York. Is that correct? It was actually in Ireland first. There was a small little label that I was with in Dublin. And we had a great, it was kind of a good plan made sense we, we we rented a big house this is in 2000 rented a big house in Connecticut in Hartford and piled a whole bunch of Irish musicians into it and the idea was like because Hartford is like literally equidistant between New York and Boston mm-hmm. so the idea was we would work the two major yeah, Irish, Irish centers of America mm-hmm. and unfortunately the guy who ran the label his credit worthiness in Ireland which was excellent meant nothing over here Ugh. so he had he couldn't raise the capital that he really needed to raise, so the whole thing kind of sank. Um, but I had a I had a buddy of mine down here, Carl Mullen, who I had met in London the year before. We played the, the Twelve Bar Club in London, which was a great little. Is Carl Irish? Carl is yeah, he's from Ireland as well, and he was he settled here for years, and he was booking Rosebud and Metropole back mm-hmm. in the day. Mm-hmm. So he was like, if you're ever anywhere near Pittsburgh, give me a shout. Rosebud and Metropole were like two incredible mm-hmm. venues in Pittsburgh. No yeah, longer he put there. me in front of like a lot of like I opened up for Richie Havens, David Gray, oh, wow. a handful of people. I can't even remember how many now. He put me in front of a good few gigs, and he, you know, so I I called Carl up to say thank you for all his help, and you know, I'm going home now with my tail between my legs, uh-huh. and he was like, just now come down, spend the summer with me in Pittsburgh. You can hang out at my place. And then go home. You got your visa to the end of the year. You know. Come party. Come party. <laughs> so I came down and, you know, this woman across the hall asked me out and we had this whirlwind romance. I ended up getting married, mm. having a couple of kids. And because it's rock and roll, we did the whole divorce thing then later. Of course. You know, just, to, you know, the bookends. 
so that's how I ended up here. It was kind of, um, I, I keep saying it was to everybody, it was actually an accident. I ended up here accidentally. I didn't have any firm plan to actually emigrate here. I wanted to work back and forward between Ireland and the US. Mm -hmm. But when I got here, it was like everything else had collapsed for me in Dublin. And then all of a sudden, these opportunities opened up for me here. Mm. It was one of those undeliberate deliberate m movements I was like you know what this is huge and risky and crazy but what the hell throw caution to the wind on this mm. for somebody who's like so intentional yeah well that's what I'm saying move. like there's times yeah. there's times there's times I don't want to be completely boxed in by that because you know sometimes the universe does throw you stuff that's very very interesting and worth following mm. you know the road less followed right I'm a you, believer in that too you have two wonderful kids I do I have to say and it's changed my life. I mean, who knows what my life would have been if I didn't make that decision, but it's changed my life in very, very fundamental ways, mm. I believe, you know? Yeah, they seem, I don't know them very well, but they seem like so thoughtful and lovely. They are. They're great. They have yeah. their moments. <laughs> sure, you know? we all do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we all do. But they are, they're fantastic kids. What are their names? Kean and Grania. Nice. Old Irish names. Yeah, I'm sure they have a great time during roll call. <laughs> Grania won't... Grania won't uh, she won't let them put their name on a cup at Starbucks because she doesn't want to deal with them messing up their name. Yeah. That's smart. Let's talk about the, the culture shock when you first came to America. Um, I'm thinking, I don't know if this could be labeled culture shock or not, but I read a little bit about the diversity that you experienced in America. It was It's not like that of Ireland where everybody is... Seem, mostly everybody is white and Catholic and all yeah. of a sudden you're in New York and hearing like eight different languages in one day. Yeah. I literally had, uh, I mean, the very first time I was here in the US, it was probably, it was 91. I was dating this girl from New York and we came, we flew into Logan and it was like I walked into the middle of this TV set or something like that with all these like new characters that I'd never seen before all, the, all these Americans strangely enough <laughs> uh, because yeah my upbringing it wasn't diverse like I literally grew up as a kid thinking that the world was white and Catholic hmm. you know so even the idea of Protestants was odd to me <laughs> right <laughs> at the time um, so yeah it was it was a bit of a culture shock and it was and I'm not sure I'm over the culture shock of that even though I'm like almost 19 years here there's still stuff about living in America that I I mean, I think it's it's such a fascinating history and such a fascinating social experiment, the whole thing of how quickly so many people got thrown together. Mm. And I think America is still trying to work that out. Yeah, it's so funny. I don't think most Americans think that this is a an experiment, you know, mm -hmm. but there's really nothing yeah. else like it. Yeah, I mean, you know, so much of European... History, you could argue, has been sorted out for a long, long time, even mm -hmm. though it's tumultuous now. Mm -hmm. But there's there's a lot of things. I don't know if I'm explaining that correctly. I mean, as I said, like, you know, it seemed like my history was thousands of years old mm -hmm. and had been pretty similar for all those thousands of years. You know, there's the Irish people. Can you, can you like, name your family history going back to, like... My the family, ninth century or yeah, something? Yeah, the 12th on yeah. my dad's side, at least. You know, our name, Dignam is not a very common name in Ireland, but it, it is still one of the older ones. And it goes back to about the 12th century. You know, my, my uncle on my mother's side, trace, he has the family tree literally traced back to the early 1700s all around this particular area, wow. Westmeath in Ireland. So we go back fairly far. 
So, you know, coming here and having people tell me that they're like, oh, I'm an eighth Irish and all, and all that. To us, we're kind of like, what does that mean? Like, what, you know, your ankle is Irish or you've got a, you've got a, a very Irish looking elbow or something. And um, for us, it was just, well, we're just Irish. We've always been Irish and all our family is Irish. Mm. So coming here and seeing that for the first time uh, was fascinating. And I'm still fascinated by it. You know, I, I I joke to people, I think I'm probably a latent sociologist with a guitar, <laughs> is really who I am. Weren't you interested in psychology? Yeah, I'm interested in I took a couple of classes recently. I, I did Sociology 101, which was very exciting for me and kind of depressing at the same time because you're kind of like, you know what, all the social woes, everybody already knows. You're so, just getting it pointed out to you. Yeah, so but you, you, you're thinking about the political system, you're saying like all this information is out there, so it's it's willful ignorance. It's people just deciding not to be a positive force in, in, in the things that need to be changed. Yeah. That could be a whole other podcast. Sure, time. yeah, you know? in our sociology uh-huh. podcast. Okay, I'm ready to talk about your music. <laughs> after, after 45 minutes of talking about Ireland. Just squeezing a couple of minutes of yes, um, stuff about music. When you perform, your songs have this immediate emotional quality to them. It's like you're kind of like transcending your own self, like... I feel healed when I hear you sing. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, can you talk about how performing music feels? Like, do you also feel healed? Yes. It, it is probably, outside of some sexual experiences, it's probably the time when I feel... Healed is a great word for it, but not, not, not quite ecstatic. Ecstatic mm. is the word. I literally have had experiences on stage that feel like drug experiences, that like feel like I am. And you know from that year. Yeah, from that, from my <laughs> 25 to 26. Um, I literally have had ecstatic experiences on stage. Oh, isn't that great? You can experience that without yeah, drug. And, and, yeah, and literally to the point of singing particular notes that I don't know whatever, everything around me, that, that a resonance happens. It's like opens a chakra right, or something. something yeah. like that, Yeah, whatever it is. And I have literally had ecstatic experiences on stage and it's probably the, the space in my life that I feel the most completely me mm. is when I am performing and doing music. And it makes sense to me that you have this like really lovely sing-along quality of your songs because whether you know it or not, you must want the people who are listening to feel what you're feeling. So mm-hmm. you're kind of a master of using like non-words in your songs, like woe and laws and like all that kind of stuff. And you also encourage others to join you and it feels a lot like church yeah. when it happens. And I love that when you when you do that, when you're singing like non-words, mm-hmm. you encourage people, you go, come on, yeah. And it, it feels like it's working, like it's just, yeah. it's not pushy, it's just... I can, I can pinpoint exactly where I, <laughs> literally I can pinpoint exactly where I started thinking about doing that. Because when I started, I was very heady about the whole thing. And I, wa- I wanted fancy chord progressions and changes and all these like technically stuff that made me look like a musician. Mm-hmm. And, and my lyrics had to be like super, super deep and things like that. And then my record company took me to Medem, which is basically the European South by Southwest. So it happens in Cannes. And so I got to go down to Cannes for a couple of days and I did this workshop. I did, I did this showcase. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's supposed to be for labels and, and all this. But it turned out to be this little hotel room. My son, Martin Hayes, who's, who's an amazing traditional Irish uh, fiddle player, was also, he was on after me. 
And so sometimes when you say Irish, you get a particular group of people who show up. Like an Irish musician is yes. playing, yeah. So, you know, they've, they've got their shamrocks and they've got their, you know, the paraphernalia. So this room was I mean, full of people. Wait, do you mean like shamrocks and paraphernalia? Like it's um, it's like messy, drunk St. Patrick's Day people or like not, even, not that? <laughs> that that's, even, that's even another thing. But there's like, I, I, I remember I remember seeing the Frames play in, in Cleveland. They opened up for the new pornographers. And they'd show up in all the Irish jumpers and uh, like sweaters, you call them here, and like, and they had, you know, kiss me, I'm Irish almost. It's almost like if something Irish is happening, they have to turn up to it. Okay. They don't even know what it is. And often they're disappointed because <laughs> they're like, well, that's not Irish. Uh, and yes, we very much are. But so, <laughs> so, I ended up, so I ended up in this showcase and the front two rows of this like five row little showcase room was full of French millionaire women who were had all these fur coats. They were dripping with gold and they were sitting <laughs> sitting in the front row, stoic, waiting to be entertained by Irish music. And I realised that they couldn't speak English. Mm. I died a death in that room. It was horrific. Wow. Because they just didn't get it. They heard me say the word God in one song and they was like, isn't it great that he's religious? <laughs> you know, if they'd only known what right. I was singing about. And I thought about it from that. So, you know, I was like... Wow, I've really created that a barrier for myself between, you know, if I want to be an international folk rock star or whatever, mm-hmm. I have to be able to reach people and take down those barriers. So the big thing for me is taking down the barriers. And I started thinking about, you know, what is it that's great about Irish music? And it is that sing-along thing. And so I'm a big believer in choruses. I'm mm-hmm. all about choruses and I'm all about it's a concert and it's kind of a pub gig at the same time. But I am very careful to not allow it to swing completely too far to one extreme or the other. Mm. You know, I don't want it to be a pub gig. If people interfere with my gig, I'll throw them the fuck out. <laughs> you know, and I, I fought with that when I got here first. When I when I got to Pittsburgh first and I started mm-hmm. playing Club Cafe, and there was people like talking away at the and Chatty were, Cathy's. right, and and it was like you know I think the people that were running the place at the time weren't too happy with me because I would say, look, you know, if you're not into it, leave. You know, and they're like, what the fuck are you doing? Tell them people to leave. <laughs> And I'm like, because I wanted, I wanted to create a concert environment, mm-hmm. but also that community thing. Yes, you can join in, but you can't piss all over the whole thing for everybody else. You right. either do it as a community or you get the hell out. Right. And uh, I think I've achieved that. I'm, you know, I haven't had a show in a long time that I've really had to fight for. Mm. You know? So that being said, I've talked to people about this before, about the line, you know. Um, it's like, like for you you'll have this open-hearted song that's like wa- arms wide open, but somehow you're not crossing that line into being too naive or too idealist or basically yeah. just like a I do that in my ball. personal life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're being romantic with your music, but we believe you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, right. There's that line. How do you hold that line? Are you familiar with the line? It's, it's, it, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, Bono's had a great thing at one stage because people were hammering him about his songs. And he's like, oh, you know, you're not really like that. And he says, you know, my, my songs are aspirations. It's me talking about the aspirations of who I want to be and who mm-hmm. I... And I, again, it's that pendulum thing and trying to control the pendulum. Sometimes I want to be very, very personal and really open things up because I want to open the world up for for other people mm-hmm. to have their experiences validated. I had a, it was it was a haunting and beautiful thing one night. A woman came up to me and said, I hope this doesn't freak you out, but I was very close to killing myself one night. 
and one of your songs convinced me not to do it. And I was like, I was like, oh my God. And she says, and I, I don't want to tell you what the song is because I don't want you to get oh, caught up in that. Yeah. Um, but I just want to know, I want you to know that what you said in that song, I got it. And it walked me from where I was to where I am now. Wow. And it was amazing. It was beautiful. I was like, you know, the, the responsibility and the power of that on the one hand was kind of terrifying. But it was also like, yes, uh, not that I want to save the world, but I want to, I want to write songs that people can listen to and say, yes, I get it. I have been there. And so I want to sometimes open things up to the darker side of life and the family politics and personal relationships in a way that is not pop music. Mm-hmm. You know, pop has its place and it does its thing and that's great. But I, you know, I want to be the emotional, psychological sociologist with a guitar mm. who talks about things that necessarily other people may not talk about. I wonder how you feel about social media. You're a very open person and you seem to have taken to it as another way to show your authentic self. I could be wrong, but you share opinions and reflections pretty freely, especially on your Facebook Mm -hmm. and honestly more so than a lot of musicians I've seen. And you get a good bit of reaction, but do you find social media and being able to share as you do to heighten your experience? To heighten my experience. Now, how define that a little bit more. Does it add to your life or does it take away? I honestly don't know. I just think the way that you utilize Facebook in particular, it's very engaging and it's so very you. You know, I'm, I don't know many I'm people. definitely very me. Yeah, I don't know many people who are able to yeah. just be themselves and... Yeah. I mean, you hold back, you, you say like something sad happened to me, but I'm not going to talk about it, mm-hmm. you know, um, but you're yeah. not baiting people to like ask you. It's just, it's just, it's hard to kind of put into words how you conduct yourself on Facebook, but I like it. And I wondered if, because most people, when they, they hear about social media and they want to talk about social media, it's usually nothing good, mm-hmm. but I feel like you're using it in a very poetic way. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it could possibly be the way that Mark Zuckerberg thought it should have been used in the first place, <laughs> where it was just all about community and all about creating, you know, that family that I didn't have, you know, right. that I get to have it electronically. Oh, that's so interesting. The family that you never had. You right. So I've got it. honing I've, that community on I've Facebook. got a community in that way. And I've got people from thousands. I've got people in other countries that I still interact mm-hmm. with through it. So that's great. But it's it's a conversational thing for me more than... You know, everyone talks about the promotional opportunities of social yeah, no, media I, I, and the, how the internet's going to change the business. And, yeah. and I'm like, <laughs> I long got over that. Yeah, yeah. I definitely use it as more of a living room than an office. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, I definitely, I mean, there's times, yes, I do promote my gigs and things like that. Of course. But it's much more, as you can probably see, it's much more me talking about what's going on in my life and what's going on in the world and how yeah. I feel about it and getting opinions. And I very much, I mean, the thing is, most people are afraid, and this is not being derogatory towards most people, but most people are afraid to stand up and be their authentic selves. Mm-hmm. I have dealt with that a long time ago, where I've, I've said, you know what, uh, I want to be a little bit braver than that. I want to stand up and say unpopular things and see what people say. Right. Not, not even for the shock value, but just to bring things out into the open. You know, again, going back to the Catholicism and, and even growing up with the disability stuff, there's so many things in my life that I, that I wasn't able to talk about. You know, I realized that my childhood was 
was so conscripted. Nobody talked about sexuality. Nobody talked about anything outside of the the framework, the mainstream myopic framework that we mm-hmm. were all living in. So, you know, I got to break out of that framework and I want to stay broken out of it. Yeah. I don't ever want to be restricted to the level that we can't talk about things that are actually happening for other people. I'd love to read your book. Yeah, oh man, it's going to be, particularly after this year, it's going to be, I always laugh about that. I say, man, my biography is going to be, God. Uh, it's not going to be dull. I just think. I haven't had a dull life. Yeah, I think that the reason I started this podcast was to have conversations just like this, mm-hmm. because I think that we have so much to learn from artists who take the time to be intentional to reflect on humanity. Yeah. And if we can have, if I can sit down and have an honest conversation with uh, an artist, I think that it, it really gives back in a big way. And I think that, you know, not to over flatter you, but I think that we have a lot to learn from you. And, and your, your Facebook presence is just one example. Let me give you the inside scoop on artists. Okay. You know who artists are? Artists are exactly the same as you, except for we've decided to be more vocal. Artists are people who have all the same fears, experiences, and everything, and have decided to channel those into a medium Mm. of some kind. So the only difference is that the person who has all those experiences just hasn't got around to expressing them Right. Yet. Well, I would also add that artists have taken the time to reflect. And, and work on the craft of what they do, because you have to do the 10,000 hours to become good at what you're doing. Yeah. But I, I've had that conversation for so many years. People say, oh, you're so incredibly talented. I could never do what, you're, what you do. And I'm like, well, actually, you, you could. It's just that you weren't as motivated to do it as I was. Mm. You know, I decided to put in the 10,000 hours yeah. and become what I am today. Whereas you decided to go off and do something else. Right. You know, you're a much better accountant than I will ever be, sir. Totally. <laughs> you know. Well, thank you. This has been really great. Pleasure. Conversation. It's, you know what? It's, it's always been, any of the interviews I've ever done with you have always been a pleasure. Not every interview you do in the world is a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> some, of them are, some of them are tough and difficult. Yeah. Uh, and I have always been delighted to get a call from you to do anything. Thank you. And definitely going to miss you in this town. Oh. For sure. Well, um, you can come to Boston anytime. I've heard that that's a possibility. Yeah. I will do that for sure. It's a place for you. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. Uh, What a really special guy, Mark Dignam on Basic Folk. uh, And hope you get a chance to uh, see Mark live. Um, He does tour around here and there. And uh, he does have that one album up on Spotify that you can check out. It's just incredible where his songs uh, take people when you listen to him and he's got a, a great life story and so happy to have him on the podcast. I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors again for Basic Folk. Okay, Basic Folk is supported by Lindsay Myers from LMNO Management who suggests that if you like this podcast, you'd also like the band Tina and Her Pony. You can check them out on your preferred streaming platform or follow them at Tina and Her Pony on Facebook and Instagram. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday 
You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, wiupfm.org. Thanks to Laura McCarthy for producing Basic Folk and Alex Stanton for the music. I'm Cindy Howes. You can find more information, show notes, and all that at cindyhowes.net. Please subscribe and tell your friends about Basic Folk, and we will talk to you next week. All right. Bye.